Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, Medical Grand Rounds. Uh, we have the great good fortune of having uh, one of our uh, prized uh, faculty members with us today, Alec Gifford. Uh, Alex uh, is uh, uh, someone who graduated from Allegheny uh, College, uh, Phi Beta Kappa, and Penn State University, uh, Alpha Omega Alpha, uh, before coming to uh, internal medicine residency here. Um, thereafter, he did his pulmonary and critical care uh, fellowship, but not before he did his chief medical residency, where I had the great uh, fun of working uh, with him uh, that year. Um, he is a, a, an excellent teacher. He does a lot of teaching in the uh, Scientific Basis of Medicine course. Uh, SBM uh, has gotten numerous teaching awards from students and residents uh, and uh, is now a, a staunch member of the uh, Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. Uh, we know him personally as someone who always shows up at morbidity, mortality, and improvement conference, always makes contributions, and has always a role model, uh, professionalism and high standards, uh, which uh, I think we all aspire to. Uh, Alex was this way when he was an intern, and he uh, continues to be that way uh, today. So I'd like to turn it over to Alex. What is iron homeostasis telling us about cystic fibrosis? I really want to know the answer to that. <laughs> Well, good morning. Um, everybody hear me okay? Good. Um, thanks, Jonathan, for that uh, very kind introduction. Um, and it's a real uh, distinct honor to be able to present Medicine Grand Rounds today. It, it feels very much like uh, speaking to a, a large family. <laughs> it's, it's nice. Um, so we are going to discuss iron homeostasis. I want to uh, hopefully convince you that abnormalities therein are uh, telling us something about the natural history of uh, this disease um, and also um, uh, contributing to the underlying pathogenesis of uh, chronic lung uh, infection and uh, morbidity associated with that. So I have no conflicts of interest. Um, and again, just to frame the uh, learning objectives that I, I hope we uh, cover today and, and the salient points that I hope you take away from our time um, is that I want to uh, demonstrate that seminal observations in a, a co-culture model um, pioneered by the Stanton and O'Toole labs uh, here at Geisel um, uh, of Pseudomonas aeruginosa bacteria co-cultured with uh, human bronchial epithelial cells um, into which the CFTR mutation can be evaluated um, in a positive and negative sense, um, how that contributed to this entire body of work uh, that is largely clinical and translational. Um, second, I'd like to um, make, the, make you recognize that hypophremia is a hallmark of advanced CF, um, and then further explain uh, how treatment of exacerbations, which are um, repeated events in the natural history of CF, uh, influence iron homeostasis, and then on the flip side, how uh, our therapeutic uh, endeavors uh, during these periods uh, also uh, are uh, measured in changes in uh, how the body handles iron. So starting with normal, I think it's important to understand what uh, things look like in this context. So this is uh, normal bronchial histology. We have um, a fairly uh, thin-walled and organized uh, uh, bronchus. Uh, we have um, surrounding alveolar uh, sacs that are devoid of any inflammation um, or uh, septal thickening. And then if we could zoom in a, a little bit toward the epithelial uh, layer, we would see that there is a well-organized uh, pseudostratified columnar uh, epithelium with uh, apical cilia uh, that contribute to normal um, mucus clearance. And we have a uh, substratum, uh, we have a substratum uh, that is really devoid of inflammation. And I'm just gonna bring the lights down a little bit here for this animation, but um, when we have normal CFTR function, uh, we have uh, normal uh, ciliary beat frequency. Um, and if we could get down to that membrane level, 
uh, we would see that CFTR uh, is present and uh, acting as it normally does as a chloride channel, um, uh, extruding uh, chloride ions into the airway surface liquid. And that, along with sodium and uh, passive water flow, uh, contribute to the normal uh, rheology of uh, the airway surface liquid, um, such that uh, things can be uh, cleared, sorry about that, um, normally. And now moving on to CF bronchial histology, we see a number of abnormalities uh, in comparison. Um, I'm going to use the pointer here. Um, so first off, we have uh, a rather disorganized and thickened uh, bronchus here. Uh, we have uh, luminal debris, and uh, that consists of many things. Um, mucins, we have bacteria, we have um, extracellular DNA, uh, we have abundant neutrophilic inflammation, which is the prominent cell uh, type uh, in, in airway inflammation in CF. Um, and zooming in again to the epithelial layer, there we go, um, we see a, a few more things. So at the apex here, we have uh, neutrophilic uh, infiltrate uh, in the airway. We also have uh, these rather lucent structures here. Uh, those are goblet cells. Uh, those uh, produce mucus. And uh, comparatively speaking to the other um, uh, histology I showed you, these are quite hypertrophied and uh, increased in number. Um, so that contributes to um, mucus elaboration. And then we also have. Uh, uh, beneath the uh, basement membrane, uh, thickening of the substratum and infiltration by uh, inflammatory cells. And so you can imagine that on the, an aggregate level, with enough of these airways that have uh, luminal um, obliteration uh, that is a dynamic quantity but, but burdensome, uh, repetitive uh, problem, uh, that contributes to uh, mucostasis infection and a cycle of airway damage. Uh, that's the hallmark of bronchiectasis. And then if we look again at the uh, mucociliary clearance in CF, we know that it's impaired. I'll bring the lights down a little for this as well. So again, kind of zooming in on uh, the membrane, we either have quantitative defects in CFTR where it's frankly absent uh, from the uh, apical membrane, or we have CFTR that does manage to get out to the uh, cell surface, but it's non-functional. And so what we see is the cilia that are normally beating to uh, get rid of mucus, the airway surface uh, liquid uh, rheology is not favorable. We have excess mucus production. So the beat frequency um, of the cilia is reduced um, significantly, and we have a lot of mucus around. So I want to uh, show you a brief movie here um, about uh, the co-culture model, um, again, pioneered by uh, the Stanton and O'Toole labs, um, where we can take polarized, uh, viable uh, human bronchial epithelial cells um, and change CFTR um, such that uh, the 508 mutation can be present or absent. Um, and then add to the apical surface, mimicking uh, endobronchial infection, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And then that will um, dovetail with the, the iron story. So just hang with me. The overall goal of this procedure is to grow Pseudomonas aeruginosa biofilms at the apical surface of live human airway epithelial cells. This is accomplished by first establishing a confluent monolayer of airway epithelial cells on a plastic surface or a glass cover slip. The second step of the procedure is to grow a culture of P. aeruginosa bacteria constitutively expressing green fluorescent protein. The next step is to place the bacteria and airway cells in contact with each other in either a static setting or in a flow chamber. The final step of the procedure is to let bacterial biofilms develop over time while assessing the viability of the airway cells. Results can be obtained that show biofilm formation on live airway cells through fluorescence microscopy. In both the static and the flow cell assays, it was found that the CFTE monolayer could withstand the presence of P. aeruginosa for up to eight hours after inoculation without any sign of alteration. Epithelial monolayer integrity can be assessed by phase contrast microscopy using an inverted microscope, as shown by this example of a confluent monolayer of CFTE cells grown on tissue culture plates. 
over time, P. aeruginosa will produce toxins and virulence factors that can damage the epithelial cell monolayer fully for infections. In this example of a compromised CFBE monolayer, P. aeruginosa bacteria, shown in green, are seen spreading between the tight junctions of the epithelial cells and gaining access to the basolateral membranes. Biofilm formation is typically not achieved under these conditions due to the monolayer deteriorating. This image shows an overgrown P. aeruginosa biofilm observed 24 hours post-inoculation. After successfully supporting biofilm formation, the CFBE monolayer was damaged beyond repair and is now virtually absent. Residual biofilm, growing as a flat layer of bacteria, is shown attaching to the glass cover slip. When the integrity of the airway monolayer is not compromised, P. aeruginosa biofilms can successfully form and develop at the apical surface of airway cells in both co-culture models. Shown here is a representative image of a GFP-expressing P. aeruginosa biofilm grown on a complement monolayer of CFPE cells using the static co-culture biofilm model assessed by epithelial microscopy. The image is an overlay of the phase contrast channel and the fluorescence channel. This next image shows a GFP-labeled P. aeruginosa biofilm grown for six hours on a confluent monolayer of CFBE cells using the flow cell co-culture biofilm model. To facilitate the visualization of the airway monolayer, nuclei retain the text 33342 prior to inoculation with P. aeruginosa and appear blue in color. Films presenting as green clumps attached to the apical surface of the CFBE cells are dispersed across the airway cells. The typical mushroom-like structures of six-hour-old P. aeruginosa biofilms forming on a CFPE cell monolayer after 3D construction are shown here. <coughs> so I, I should say that those uh, biofilms are uh, can be visualized in uh, bronchoalveolar lavage fluid from patients. So this model um, really recapitulates, uh, we think fairly closely, um, what is going on in the uh, CF lung. And so how does all this relate to iron? Well, the, a key observation from this model was that the presence of delta F508 CFTR, so the most common uh, mutation in uh, CF patients, um, increases the iron content of the airway surface liquid. Um, and that phenomenon uh, increases Pseudomonas aeruginosa biofilm growth. So hence, iron elaboration into the CF lung is directly linked to the pathogenesis of uh, chronic infection. And so these are the data uh, from uh, these ex uh, the experiments. So uh, compared to um, medium, uh, wild-type uh, CFTR uh, cells had uh, normal, or I, I'm sorry, uh, uh, an unchanged um, extracellular iron content in the ASL. Um, but when delta F508 CFTR was present in the apical membrane, the extracellular iron content of that fluid was significantly increased. Again, showing uh, the difference in biomass here, wild-type cells had um, a certain uh, degree of pseudomonas biofilm um, assessed using the microscopic techniques um, just mentioned. Um, and then that biomass was dramatically increased um, with uh, the delta F508. Related and subsequent experiments uh, showed that iron uh, chelation abrogated this entire uh, phenotype, destroying the uh, biofilm uh, fairly readily, um, also in synergy with tobramycin. Uh, so it appears that the iron favors uh, pseudomonas biofilm growth. And some clinical data had been published um, shortly before and, and, and just after uh, these uh, findings were reported. Uh, from direct analysis of iron and sputum samples from patients. Uh, Gray and, and two papers by uh, Reed and colleagues um, in a case control format showed that the iron content of CF sputum is significantly higher uh, than uh, that from healthy uh, subjects. And so the phenomenon was already recognized as being distinctly abnormal. So in a series of studies that we uh, have performed here at Dartmouth, we wanted to uh, describe broadly what are the clinical ramifications of uh, sputum iron elevation in cystic fibrosis, knowing that it appears to be linked to the fundamental genetic defect uh, that uh, causes the disease, um, and it's also linked to uh, perpetuating chronic infection. And the hypothesis for the first study was that clinically stable patients um, would have lower sputum iron levels than those with recently worsened health. 
And so this was more of a uh, cross-sectional study uh, within our adult uh, CF uh, population. And in two cohorts, um, one of 25 patients who uh, met a definition of stability um, and 14 patients who largely were coming to clinic with features of pulmonary exacerbation um, and or who had been uh, just admitted to the hospital before treatment, um, we saw uh, significant differences um, in clinical status uh, as well as uh, in iron-related parameters. So these two groups were uh, quite different based on lung function. Uh, with moderate airflow obstruction demonstrated in patients who were uh, felt to be more stable, and then uh, very severe airflow obstruction in those who were worse. Um, patients were also uh, nutritionally more deplete um, in mm. worse clinical status, and they had a preponderance of diabetes um, associated with their CF. Um, interestingly, the ages of these patients, uh, gender uh, breakdown, and the uh, presence of the 508 um, uh, mutation were, were no different. Um, and similar proportions of these patients had multidrug-resistant pseudomonas um, in sputum isolates. And then moving to the iron-related biomarkers, um, we saw significant differences in the sputum iron content. So uh, we had almost twice as much, or exactly twice as much, um, iron in the sputum of patients who had uh, clinical worsening. They were also more hypopheremic, so we saw this dichotomy between high sputum iron content and low circulating iron content. Um, and one might posit that the iron that would normally be present in the circulatory compartment is being um, elaborated into the lung um, in this disease. Uh, patients also had slightly lower hemoglobin levels, kind of reflecting a relative anemia. Um, they had um, higher serum erythropoietin levels and higher IL-6 uh, concentrations, attesting to uh, greater inflammation. And they didn't vary by, an, uh, interestingly, um, a white count uh, parameter that we often follow as a measure of uh, inflammation. Um, and you might consider these values to reflect a low level of uh, mild leukocytosis. We um, also uh, looked at uh, the sputum iron content and whether it related to that um, in the circulatory space. And so in the uh, first panel, we see that there really wasn't a direct correlation between the two parameters, uh, which may have been a bit more than we've <laughs> a lot to ask. Um, but there was a very tight correlation between uh, lung function and uh, circulating iron content. Uh, and that has been described in other uh, work in CF. And interestingly, um, in data from normal humans, that relationship still holds uh, for unclear reasons. Um, but we, we defined that the main uh, take-home point from the study was that we defined a phenotype of CF disease severity um, around iron-related parameters. So <clears throat> patients who are uh, fundamentally sicker um, by a number of clinical metrics had um, more iron in their sputum. They had lower um, plasma iron. They were relatively anemic, more inflamed, had worse lung function. Uh, they were nutritionally uh, worse off. And they also had evidence of ineffective erythropoiesis um, if we interpret the uh, difference in uh, EPO levels um, to reflect a signal that's not being uh, met by the erythron. And one of the critiques of that study was that it was cross-sectional and it really didn't have a control arm uh, as other studies did with, with uh, looking at iron and CF sputum. Um, and so I went back and just for uh, purposes of comparison, looked at the uh, data from NHANES about uh, serum iron levels in the normal population um, and also data about hemoglobin uh, to just give a sense of what our patients look like vis-a-vis uh, -vis those uh, uh, healthy subjects. So uh, in looking at uh, age uh, and gender-specific data uh, from NHANES and comparing the patients that we had studied cross-sectionally, uh, we can, again, see that they're really hypopheremic uh, compared to the general population, um, and that is largely the age range that we um, are considering in our patients, uh, 20 to 39 years old. 
One of the other um, issues in defining iron deficiency in CF is the variability in what has been used, you know, which metrics. Um, so one of the uh, studies that probably looked at the uh, broadest array of biochemical markers was that by Khalid um, and colleagues, uh, and they looked at transferrin saturation, so TSAT, uh, ferritin, which we know is an acute phase reactant and may not be the uh, most accurate uh, reflection of iron stores. Um, and they also looked at soluble transferrin receptor, which is felt to be less influenced by inflammation and in general elevated um, in conditions of iron deficiency. Um, and you can see in the, the middle panel here that depending on uh, clinical status of the patients, um, but also which metric you use um, to define iron deficiency, there was quite um, a, a, a difference in prevalence. Um, in other studies, uh, that of Reed and, and Pond, uh, Kievel, and other work that we've done here, um, have shown uh, fairly high uh, prevalence of iron deficiency. Um, but again, uh, the, the definitions vary. And then when we look at hemoglobin, going back to the NHANES data, um, we see that CF patients are uh, relatively anemic. Um, the authors at the bottom, uh, Butler and Whalen, uh, looked at the NHANES data and said that in men, a, a hemoglobin level of 13.7 should really represent a lower limit of normal um, based on the NHANES data. And you can see how close to that uh, proposed cutoff the uh, CF patients, the, the, the men in the cohort, um, are uh, sitting uh, stratified across the um, x-axis by um, age. And the numbers of patients you can see are small, much smaller in our studies, um, but uh, still demonstrate a trend. And then when we look at uh, females, um, in general, the hemoglobin levels are a bit lower, um, but compared to women in the NHANES study, um, we also see that they uh, fall below mm -hmm. a proposed uh, lower limit of normal for hemoglobin of 12.2 uh, grams per deciliter um, in the normal population. So it seems to be irrelevant, uh, or irrespective rather, of uh, gender um, in cystic fibrosis. And it also uh, seems to be um, perhaps progressive, at least based on, on these data, um, that anemia is worse as CF patients age. And so having demonstrated a phenotype um, of CF disease severity around uh, abnormalities in iron homeostasis, we wanted to come back and assess how the inflammatory milieu um, affects the body's uh, handling of iron. And so, one paradigm is shown here um, where chronic infection or even acute infection um, stimulates the production of uh, interleukin-6. This cytokine is intimately related to iron homeostasis because it is directly associated with hepcidin-25. Um, and hepcidin, we'll talk about in a minute, is an, uh, the master iron regulatory hormone of the body. Hepcidin acts on uh, mononuclear cells to um, have them withhold iron such that it's not available for uh, the erythron. And it also blocks um, iron absorption uh, through the GI tract, um, thus uh, limiting iron for um, erythropoiesis as well. And so what is this, what is this molecule? Um, it's, it's synthesized as a pre-pro-hormone, and it follows that uh, paradigm of uh, processing, uh, post-translationally, um, to uh, a small 25 amino acid um, active uh, moiety. The processing from the pre-pro-hormone to the pro-hormone, that is all not yet known. Um, but this uh, molecule is produced by the liver, and it's induced potently by IL-6. It's one of these uh, small uh, cationic um, uh, proteins that has intrinsic microbicidal activity. And so that can be seen at levels, uh, or concentrations rather, as low as 10 to 30 micromolar. Um, and it is also unique in that it has uh, several internal disulfide bonds, um, which uh, is, is very curious. Um, and it's a very potent um, uh, hormone that reduces serum iron. And so let's talk a little bit about uh, duodenal um, iron absorption. So this uh, cartoon shows uh, the enterocytes that would line the uh, duodenum um, and a vessel into which iron would be um, absorbed. And there are several players um, involved at a molecular level with this process. In the apical membrane, um, divalent metal transporter 1, or DMT1, is the uh, uptake uh, 
transporter for uh, non-heme-bound iron. In the basolateral membrane of the enterocytes, we have ferroportin. Um, it, the only function uh, known uh, about ferroportin is that it's an export channel. Um, so it really has a unidirectionality by virtue of being um, expressed in the basolateral membrane. And then in the circulation, we have uh, transferrin. That is the uh, major uh, transport molecule of iron um, in humans. Um, and then uh, we have iron and hepcidin. So what happens in normal circumstances is that iron um, comes through DMT1. It's translocated uh, to the basolateral membrane. Um, and it exits the cells through ferroportin and binds to transferrin uh, in the circulation. And it goes on its way. In cases where uh, hepcidin is upregulated, hepcidin binds to ferroportin, and that triggers an internalization of that receptor and uh, degradation within the cell. And so that is how it affects um, negatively um, enteroiron absorption in states of inflammation. And so this is the anemia of chronic disease uh, paradigm at, at work. Iron is also recycled extensively within the body um, because it has, um, and it's also controlled extensively because it has the ability to cause um, oxidative damage. Um, and so uh, iron that is contained within erythrocytes um, is recycled by uh, macrophages. So here we see um, a mononuclear cell macrophage um, trying to digest a red blood cell here, which is a normal process within the body. And that liberates heme-bound iron into the cell. Uh, these cells have ferritin intracellularly, which is a, an ability, an inducible ability, to um, sequester iron. Um, and interestingly, these uh, mononuclear cells also um, express ferroportin, the export protein. And, and that is the way, if I can get this to work, um, iron is exported to transferrin to be recycled by the erythron to make new uh, red blood cells. So here we see the uh, heme iron uh, being liberated. Some of it's sequestered intracellularly in ferritin. Uh, some does exit uh, the cell through ferroportin and binds to transferrin. And then even more can be sequestered in ferritin. And hepcidin will eventually come along here and uh, bind to, to ferroportin, uh, causing internal degradation. And the monocyte, macrophage, um, becomes an iron sequestering uh, phenotype. And then we also see lower circulating iron uh, levels because transferrin is relatively depleted uh, when hepcidin is, is upregulated. So whether this process and or uh, duodenal um, uptake of iron are normal in CF is, is unclear, and it's an area of active research. So just to summarize um, hepcidin, because we'll talk more about that soon in, in uh, clinical uh, terms, it decreases uh, gut iron absorption. Um, it stimulates withholding by the mononuclear cells. Um, interestingly, the response to uh, hepcidin is faster in macrophages than it is by the erythrocytes. Um, it's potently, its synthesis is potently suppressed by erythropoietic activity. So if you think that you need iron to make red blood cells by, uh, in the bone marrow, you really want to have higher access to that and, and greater absorption from the gut and also maybe turnover from uh, internal stores. So hepcidin really should be suppressed. The exact signals um, that um, arise from active erythropoiesis um, that suppress hepcidin aren't totally known. Um, but there are some thoughts that EPO could be involved and uh, bone morphogenic protein, uh, BMP, um, could be as well. And the last point about IL-6, um, how potent this effect is, um, the last point comes from studies in humans who were infused with LPS. Um, and uh, serum uh, hepcidin and IL-6 levels were measured. And this response comes on within about four hours and peaks. So we thought, well, exacerbation is a subacute to an acute uh, phenomenon in cystic fibrosis. And you know, it, it seems to have something to do with uh, differences in iron handling. So what? What is it about exacerbation that um, affects iron handling from the um, biochemical side and, and other biomarkers? And we hypothesize that treatment of CF pulmonary exacerbation in the usual clinical fashion um, attenuates the effects of inflammation on iron homeostasis. 
And as a lot of you know, uh, treatment is uh, much more than intravenous antibiotics for these population, or this population, I should say, um, when we uh, admit them to the hospital. Uh, antibiotics are well represented down here, but it's really a multimodality um, effect. And so knowing that, I want you to have that in the back of your mind when I show you data about what happens to the iron-related biomarkers, because we don't know the relative contributions of each of these um, interventions on those patterns. So in the top panel, we see a vest, a percussive vest that's used for mucus clearance in these patients. We have a number of inhaled uh, medications that are in the families of mucolytics, so inhaled um, Dornase alpha, recombinant uh, human DNAs, uh, that's inhaled to uh, help thin mucus. Uh, we have hypertonic saline that's also inhaled to help with mucus rheology so that it's easier to expectorate, um, and bronchodilators. We aggressively manage diabetes, um, uh, which we think um, helps infection fighting by virtue of uh, helping phagocytosis, um, getting sugars out of the stratosphere. And uh, we also emphasize nutrition um, and uh, optimizing uh, pancreatic enzyme supplementation in, in patients who have exocrine um, insufficiency. So it's a, it's a big uh, production um, in terms of what we're doing. So with that in mind, we studied 12 patients um, at early and late uh, CF pulmonary exacerbation, so the beginning and end of their uh, treatment courses. Um, and, and these are the data about uh, their characteristics early on. Um, you can see that these uh, patients are generally older, um, mostly men, and they have very severe uh, lung uh, function um, impairments, so an FEV1 of uh, 29%. These are median uh, data. Um, most of them had uh, the 508 uh, DEL mutation. Uh, again, most of them had diabetes. So it again recapitulated the phenotype we studied before, and that probably means that generally sicker patients tend to be in the hospital more. It's not, not that um, surprising. Um, these patients uh, did have hypophoremic anemia, um, presumably um, occurring because of the mechanisms that we just went over. And the hospital length of stay was about 12 days with a range of five to 19. And I just wanted to put that in some perspective for you to, to show how we do business here compared to other CF centers. So in the top panel, uh, this shows the incidence of uh, physician reported, center reported um, CFPE um, among adults in 2011. Uh, we are in the burgundy bar of these approximately 110 CF centers, um, and our uh, adults have an exacerbation um, incidence of about 38%. Um, nationwide, that was a little bit higher at around 42%. Uh, um, and the hospital length of stay, um, we're to the left of center here a little bit, meaning we keep patients in a little bit longer than some centers. Um, but it's just very curious, the range, the, the variation in uh, the number of hospital days for treating a phenomenon that we think is occurring you know, in the same fashion to pretty much the same patients. There's um, still a lot of variability in how it's uh, determined. But you know, relative to the exacerbation um, iron study that we're going through, um, they were uh, in the hospital about uh, according to our usual average. So did we do something uh, beneficial for these patients? Well, yes. Um, the median weight gain uh, was two kilograms um, in these uh, 12 patients. Um, and their FEV1 improved by just, uh, just shy of 5%. Um, and we do see greater increases in FEV1 in response to uh, treatment. Um, but again, these are patients who are starting from FEV1 uh, values that are pretty severely impaired. So we don't expect as much of a robust increase um, in lung function. Um, but there's some, and it's detectable statistically in as little as 12 patients. Um, and again, this was after 12 days. So what goes on with iron? So serum iron levels um, increase significantly by 2.4 uh, micromolar. And sputum iron uh, tended to decrease. Uh, the p-value for the comparison in panel B is exactly 0.05, much to my chagrin. So, um, but it is probably a numbers game. Um, and the decrease there was uh, 0.9 uh, nanograms per milligram of sputum. So it's a weight-based um, uh, assessment of sputum iron. 
We also saw evidence of manipulation of the IL-6 hepcidin axis um, that goes along with the uh, serum iron changes. So you'll note that these are in uh, log scale, um, but there were uh, decreases significantly in IL-6 by 12.1 uh, picograms per mil um, and serum hepcidin by 37.5 nanograms per mil. Um, interestingly, we did not see any effect on erythropoiesis. If we postulate that well, you're making iron more bioavailable, you're you know, giving these patients um, ample access to nutrition, shouldn't the bone marrow come along for the ride and you should see some improvement in hemoglobin um, or at least maybe a decrease or, or increase in EPO, the signal for stimulation of uh, red blood cell production. Um, but in these patients, those uh, comparisons were pretty flat. So in summary, um, CFPE treatment um, relative to iron homeostasis, it promotes anabolism. We get improvements in lung function. We get better, uh, higher uh, circulatory iron stores. It's intrinsically anti-inflammatory um, and modulates that axis. Um, we reduce lung iron uh, losses, and there's really no change um, on the erythra. So we have this conundrum. Uh, we have a need for iron. We have many processes that the body needs iron for. We have red blood cell production. Iron is important in DNA replication, um, and iron is critically important for mitochondrial energetics, uh, specifically the electron transport chain. Um, but we have the lung functioning as a sink for iron um, in CF patients. And so we can envision that dietary iron in whichever form is absorbed, and it has really two avenues available to it. We can have uh, some iron uh, going toward uh, natural processes that, that are dependent upon it, but we also have iron accumulating in the lung and contributing, contributing uh, to uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa biofilm formation, as we've talked about before. And so this has raised uh, some concern in the CF field about iron supplementation. Um, knowing that there's variability in how hypofremia is defined in the first place. But gee, you know, iron could facilitate infection by all this evidence we presented already. And so letters have been written um, about some observations. Um, there's a potential risk of deterioration three to five days after IV iron administration um, in folks who are um, hospitalized for uh, exacerbation. Um, and others have called, uh, this is Reed's group at the bottom, um, that future studies in this area really need to ensure that iron deficiency is defined carefully um, and that we have outcome measures that um, we can go back and say it was or was not related to the iron administration. So we did this study. Um, with uh, help from the Flatley Foundation in Boston, uh, Massachusetts, we did a controlled trial of uh, iron supplementation in CF. Um, asking the question, is this safe? Our hypothesis for that was treatment with low-dose ferrous sulfate will improve CF-related anemia without worsening health. So this was a uh, crossover study. So we had screening criteria that I'll go over in a minute, uh, randomization within a couple weeks of that time period, and two six-week arms uh, that involved um, an initial, a midpoint, and a final evaluation as you see here, and then a, a four-week washout um, in between. And this was a randomized double-blind and placebo-controlled. Uh, the intervention was fairly low-dose iron, uh, one 325-milligram uh, iron tablet taken daily for six weeks. And to get at the issue of whether this um, intervention was safe, we wanted to track exacerbation. We wanted to be concrete about it. Um, and so um, I borrowed um, uh, an exacerbation score uh, that uh, was proposed by uh, Nate Cranach and his colleagues um, at Akron Children's Hospital. So this uh, pulmonary exacerbation score um, is a way to really get at um, CFPE. Um, the goals are to standardize antibiotic prescription and improve triage. What this uh, group was noticing uh, was that when patients were calling in with symptoms of being ill, um, some patients were not getting antibiotics when maybe another provider who uh, took care of CF patients more regularly would have given them. So it was designed to try and unify, uh, unify um, antibiotic uh, prescription at this center. Um, they defined, based on the criteria, a score of greater than or equal to five as having an exacerbation. 
And what they noted after they got this going at, at Akron was that uh, lung function was up significantly, as was antibiotic prescription. Um, so it seemed to be a, a quality improvement endeavor that, that got them somewhere. Um, no other studies besides the one we're doing here, have done here, uh, use this particular inventory to evaluate biomarker candidates. And so who is, who is in and out on this? Um, the uh, study was done in adults exclusively. Um, CF was confirmed in all of our patients um, anyway by mutation analysis. And hypofremia for this um, I defined as a TSEG uh, less than or equal to 21%, so a transparent saturation uh, less than that. And, and why did I pick that? Um, because of the observations I made uh, comparing our patients' data to the NHANES uh, cohort. Um, so it turns out that the uh, cutoff of 21% for a TSET is below the mean uh, for 20 to 39-year-old uh, Caucasian women. And so I thought that would uh, represent perhaps the most um, hypopheremic uh, pa uh, patient population uh, that we would see. Similarly, I applied uh, hemoglobin cutoffs, uh, which do intrinsically vary uh, between, or differ, I should say, between men and women, um, again, based on age-specific um, uh, ranges from NHANES. So hemoglobin less than 15.5 for men and 13.6 for women. And all of these patients had a pseudomonas history. Um, we did not study patients who were pregnant or breastfeeding, had any iron overload condition, which um, does occur. Um, uh, had recent visible hemoptysis because we know that that increases our sputum iron by about 100-fold, um, or cirrhosis, um, or the use of any iron supplements. And this is the, the flow. Um, we had uh, screened 31 patients, um, and we were left with uh, five who didn't uh, meet criteria and some others who uh, could not participate. Um, that left us with uh, 24 uh, patients. Uh, two patients started the uh, study uh, but were lost to follow-up, um, and they were not, data from those patients were not analyzed. Um, and then we, so we studied a population of 22 patients who uh, finished both arms. The age, again, um, similar to our other studies, um, a, a bit older, uh, 32 years old, uh, mostly men. Uh, lung function was a little bit better, so moderate uh, obstruction present here, um, a little bit higher body weight. Um, the F508 uh, mutation was a little bit more frequent than uh, the average uh, in Caucasians, but not, not much, um, and most patients had diabetes. And th these are just to show that we indeed, based on our screening criteria, did um, have at baseline uh, patients who met uh, the serum iron and hemoglobin uh, and TSAT criterion. Um, and these were the baseline hepcidin and sputum iron levels. Um, interestingly, the, the sputum iron uh, content was really on par with our earlier study of 1.4 uh, micrograms per gram. So um, this was a multi-center study. We did have some patients from um, Maine Medical Center um, contributing to this. So um, it was just very curious to me that the sputum iron came in at about the same uh, level. So we did demonstrate a treatment effect um, in these patients with mild um, anemia but significant hypopheremia. Um, and these uh, plots uh, uh, show the difference between placebo and active treatment. Um, the mean increase in serum iron was about 13.7 uh, micrograms per deciliter. Um, and uh, transparent saturation increased at about uh, two, four percent, or by 4%, I should say. These comparisons were made at week six of each arm, so week six of placebo, week six of active treatment within patients. And in a responder analysis, we, again, didn't see a hemoglobin response in patients who, in whom we could still increase their uh, serum iron levels. Importantly, sputum iron didn't increase. So we were concerned, again, going back to the conundrum paradigm, that taking supplemental iron would just feed the fire of lung infection. It would just grossly transit um, into the lung. So the multivariate uh, model um, predicting uh, sputum iron uh, did not show an effect of uh, ferrous sulfate. Uh, there was also um, no uh, carryover effects between the arms, uh, which meant that it was uh, randomized appropriately. Um, antibiotics, interestingly, did not seem to have an effect in this uh, trial, but that was something that wasn't um, prospectively evaluated. These patients took antibiotics as necessary. Um, 
Interestingly, serum hepcidin and serum EPO were predictive of sputum iron content. These are the first descriptions of uh, any kind uh, that predict sputum iron content. Um, and so these models, you would read this as um, one microgram per deciliter increase in sputum iron correlates or corresponds to a 0 0.01 uh, picogram per mil increase in serum hepcidin. So there uh, is a direct correlation there, and the same for EPO. One thing that was very exciting was that we um, showed that serum hepcidin 25 uh, values measured within the same patients over time um, were predictive of their exacerbation scores that were also con uh, measured concurrently. Um, and so this was uh, plotted with uh, some degree of error um, for the definition of exacerbation. So as you recall, um, using the Akron scale, uh, a value of five or greater defined exacerbation. So that cutoff here is in uh, red. And when we see where the plot for hepcidin crosses that, it can range there we go, um, between 35 and 115 uh, nanograms per mil. Um, and, and so this is the first time that an iron-related biomarker has been equated to um, a clinical uh, instrument used to define exacerbation objectively. Uh, we also wanted to know if iron affected uh, the pseudomonas um, uh, relative abundance in these sputum samples. Uh, these uh, comparisons were again from sputum at the end of week six, uh, looking at whether they were on or off iron. Um, and the, they show the fraction of pseudomonas based on um, uh, 454 pyro sequence, sequencing, which is a, a non-culture-based uh, way to quantitate uh, organisms uh, in various samples. Um, and we did not see any change using those techniques in pseudomonas uh, relative abundance. And we also didn't see any uh, gross change on overall bacterial diversity. So that's uh, manifested here by the Simpson diversity index. Um, and so that was also somewhat assuring that we weren't um, affecting the uh, lung flora. So the main conclusions from this study were that um, supplemental iron did, increase, did have a treatment effect after six weeks. Um, it was not particularly effective at what it was supposed to do, increase hemoglobin. Um, but it also did not increase sputum iron content, affect uh, the burden of infection, um, and it didn't seem to trigger uh, ex exacerbations as we defined it there. So some future directions just in the last couple minutes um, regarding CF iron homeostasis. So we have contributed to a significant body of literature now suggesting that, that serum hepcidin 25 could be a biomarker um, for use in CF. Um, what interests me is the um, ability to perhaps detect exacerbation earlier by using serum hepcidin 25, um, and also perhaps customize uh, the duration of antibiotic treatment, which is relative, irrelevant because there's such a uh, diverse range of uh, hospital lengths of stay for treating a phenomenon that should be the same everywhere. Um, and so maybe we can save a few days in the hospital using the biomarker. Um, we are also curious about other mechanisms of airway iron elaboration. So again, do the macrophages in CF hold on to iron appropriately, or maybe they're leaky? Maybe they actually contribute to um, iron loss in the lung and thus facilitate oxidative damage and infection. And also, antibiotics we've been noticing um, don't really quantitatively affect the bacterial burden of the CF lung. We and others have shown that. So do antibiotics somehow modulate iron scavenging by bacteria in the lung? And maybe that's why patients get better. Um, and then, as I mentioned in the co-culture model, iron chelation has been shown to um, abrogate these uh, pseudomonas biofilms. Um, so it raises a therapeutic angle of perhaps bringing inhaled iron chelators um, to bear on CF treatment, where we can, again, reduce lung iron, uh, which should theoretically reduce the burden of infection and oxidative damage. So these are some future avenues. Um, I have had and enjoyed and uh, am thankful for um, a large uh, core of mentors who have guided me through these studies, supported me um, outright um, in all of this work. Um, Dr. Uh, George O'Toole in uh, microbiology and immunology um, has uh, been a, a, a phenomenal um, leader. We've, he's taught me a lot about scientific writing, as has Dr. Stanton, um, who has also supported me um, with the lung biology group. 
Um, Dr. Parker, um, a clinical mentor of mine for years. Um, I really appreciate his help. Uh, Rick Enwo uh, and Ali Asher and Deb Hogan have also been uh, instrumental in helping me get this far. Lots of other people um, in collaboration here. I alluded to Maine Medical Center. Diana Alexandru and Jonathan Zuckerman are colleagues who uh, worked with us on the iron supplement study. Um, our research nurses in the CF uh, world, Dana Dorman and Lisa Moulton, none of this could be done without them. Uh, we worked with Brian Jackson in the uh, trace metals core uh, to do the sputum, micro, uh, sputum iron analyses. Um, Katie Price and Tom Hampton within the lung biology group have uh, worked on microbiome and statistical aspects. Kathy Smith um, and DART Lab, uh, the immune monitoring core, um, worked on a lot of the cytokine data. Hepcidin 25 isn't a clinically available lab test yet, um, but we have worked with intrinsic um, life sciences, um, Gordana Albina and Mark Westerman um, in La Jolla, California. Um, they have, have an ELISA that um, can detect this bioactive molecule. Um, Mitch Sogan at um, Woods Hole, uh, we collaborated with him on the microbiome analyses, and Jigong Lee from the biostatistics uh, division helped with the stats on the uh, iron supplement trial. And these are the funding sources. Um, uh, again, uh, can't, can't convey enough of my uh, thanks for the support. And thanks for your attention. Alex, thank you so much for crafting such a beautiful uh, uh, narrative of what you've been uh, doing together with all of your collaborators. And also, even though your, your presentation uh, is so impeccably uh, objective and evidence-based, um, I think you've shared and everybody would relate to the beautiful uh, molecular biology, uh, genetics, and protein chemistry, which is involved in all of this. So it's a, a, just a very beautiful presentation. Thank you. We have some time for some questions. Uh, first, Dan, and then Rick. So that's Tim. beautiful, Alex. And I'm not sure I completely followed it, but if I did, then um, the um, agent that we use to block IL-6, which is posiglitamab, might be therapeutically useful in this situation. And then the second a little question is, is um, I thought maybe a crossover um, uh, trial design might be more efficient than the um, standard RCT that we use. Maybe you thought about that. Yeah, um, speaking to the first point, so um, tocilizumab, anti-IL-6, um, has um, found uh, clinical use in uh, the rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and we have thought about that as uh, something that's worth studying in this population, the wrinkle being the chronic infection piece. So would it actually not be feasible because our particular patient population is also fighting um, infection? It, uh, other populations uh, have been uh, shown to have a benefit from the uh, iron utilization side. Oh, and, and uh, so the, we used a crossover design for this iron uh, supplement trial, and I think that gave us the power um, to see that. Um, but if we do uh, eventually get studies of iron chelation, I'm sure they'll have to be done in the um, uh, RCT fashion. Rick So Alex, that was great. I wanted to ask, um, you know, the original, the original observations about the effect of iron on biofilm um, formation were done with pseudomonas. And I wonder if you comment on to what degree, you know, we frequently will see, or not infrequently, see uh, CF patients come in with an exacerbation where the predominant organism seems to be, the caveat is, of course, it seems to be, uh, Staph aureus, for example. And do you have any idea whether, uh, whether that might influence the degree to which uh, iron iron measures would have a predicted value? Right. Um, so the, the question gets at, I, I think, disparities in uh, the mi uh, microbiome. And, and would staff uh, colonize patients uh, expect to manifest the same changes? And uh, staph and pseudomonas do share some similarities in terms of their intrinsic iron acquisition mechanisms. And so we may see similar findings with staph. Um, we haven't, by, by seeking patients with pseudomonas to keep in line with the model uh, the, in the preclinical uh, work, uh, we, we don't know. But it, it does, uh, it's quite a possibility that we'd see same, the same things. Tim Lady? 
So um, awesome job. I admire your fluency with sort of the full spectrum of clinical and uh, cellular uh, science. Two, two questions sort of at either uh, side of that spectrum. So one is, I, I love this, uh, this paradox of why would local uh, iron metabolism be disordered when systemically the, pa the patients get the idea of hiding the iron from the pathogen. Um, and you mentioned the idea of sort of trying to probe that, and I wondered if you could talk about, uh, you know, if you wanted to ask questions like, how does hepcidin affect ferroportin expression on the surface of macrophages, specifically from the lung, if there already is, you know, sort of a, a paradigm for asking that question, can you do BALs and, mm -hmm. and obtain those samples and do that, is that sort of in the elementary already? Yeah, um, so that is an, a very active area of work within the uh, Lung Biology Center here. Um, Ali Asher and, and Deb Hogan um, are uh, coordinators of the Translational Research Corps, um, and they have a bronchoscopy protocol um, where they are um, obtaining uh, alveolar macrophages in normal uh, control patients and our CF patients to examine in vitro whether uh, responses regarding iron um, and other parameters are um, uh, normal or not. So that, that is um, an active area of study. Can I, can I oh, sure. ask the follow-up? So the, yeah. relating to that, so you're, you have to therefore decide who to recruit. And I was thinking about your inclusion and exclusion criteria and wondering if you could comment on the low TSAP inclusion criteria. One could imagine that they are at risk for exacerbation and so you have a chance to see that. You could also imagine that their iron metabolism is so messed up at baseline that it might be difficult to see a perturbation in response to iron therapy. And mm -hmm. So I'm curious about sort of going forward, what's, what's, what's your right inclusion criteria? I, well, I think it um, it comes down to needing to follow the same patients over time. I mean, the, 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 the comparator studies, I mean, aren't going to work because these trends are in, intrinsic. We're finding that with the uh, microbiome work as well. Um, adults have, when you compare adults and their microbiomes, um, there's tremendous variability. But within the same subject, in various clinical contexts like exacerbation and treatment, things largely stay the same. So I think the studies looking at uh, biomarkers that are um, iron-related in CF are going to have to be these longitudinal, perhaps N of 1 uh, type studies um, to get at uh, those mechanisms. And I think we'll have to apply the, the iron uh, criteria that we've defined already for hypoferemia. Alex, these are very interesting studies. A lot of them talk about shifting iron within the, within the patient's uh, depots. How do you know about the absorption of iron from these patients, whether it's affected by their health status or not? Has that previously been looked at, that if they're sick, they absorb iron the same way as if they're healthy? Right. Um, that has not been studied in context. So um, it's been studied um, in studies from, I think I saw one from the late 50s, 60s, just with um, iron uptake, um, some radio label studies, but, but nothing in context. So we don't know. Um, we don't know if that's also a dynamic process depending on the inflammatory milieu. Two questions. I may have missed the first one. What, did the hepcidin levels change more in the iron supplemented group relative to the non-supplemented group? Did follow-up hepcidin levels change? Yeah, um, I did not have. I did not do that. That was a sub-analysis that wasn't done. Could be done. And then the second question is the obvious. The obvious uh, challenge is why is this an improvement over any index of inflammation? Uh, C-reactive protein. We talked about serum IL-6. Mm -hmm. Is there? A, I'm sure you did the analysis. Is there any difference in how hepcidin 25 performs relative to these other markers? Well, um, if we just look at the within uh, subject, the pre and post um, treatment uh, p-values for the differences, um, the p-value was a power of 10 to the left for hepcidin compared to serum iron um, and um, IL-6. So, I mean, there was a more statistically robust difference within the same subject. So, um, it. It, right now, it's limited because it's not available clinically. Um, but if it came to fruition in that respect, it may be something that turns around uh, quickly and is more discriminating. So the problem with measuring serum IL-6 is that it's oftentimes complex with the receptor. It's not always biologically active. Mm -hmm. So it would be much more relevant to compare it to CRPs 
and see how Hepcidin 25. It'd be great to. It would really empower you uh, and your story if the CRP did not predict as well as Hepcidin 25. Thank you. Uh, if there are no other uh, no. comments or Clay. questions, sorry, I have to take people on leave, but Alex, that was fantastic. Uh, and, and B is, you know, iron metabolism and dialysis patients is, may have a longer and more robust, uh, you know, investigative history. And hepcidin um, has hung on the horizon for a long time and as the holy grail of iron metabolism, but it hasn't quite got up to the hump. Um, but I'm curious, in your patients, if you looked at their renal function, um, because they, a lot of the CF patients do have significant renal impairment and may not have the erythropoietin reserve, for example. It's known that uh, patients with renal impairment have altered iron absorption irrespective of everything else. A lot of these patients have altered hepatic function and may not um, uh, produce hepcidin, for example. Um, those are all confounding factors that I think would be important to look at. The other thing I think would be important to look at in your hospitalized patients is how much phlebotomy they undergo. And was that equal in both arms, right. for example? So we, we did look at that, and that was uh, one of the critiques of, of that study. And we did have some sense of it, and, and there are some data that, uh, in general, uh, hospitalized patients that um, phlebotomy doesn't contribute too significantly um, to changes in, in hemoglobin, although in my, I think it probably can and does, um, but that's, that's an important uh, consideration. Yeah. Thank you all for coming. And thank Thanks. You all.